0: Thank you, uh, thank you, Pastor J.D., for the plug for the Spanish campus there. I love that um, J.D. was filmed uh, with a black background, and you can still see his hair. That means he has a lot of gray hairs. Uh, I couldn't do that. I have perfect hair yeah, no, there, right? <laughs> uh, Shout-out to all the, uh, all the Padres out there. Happy uh, Father's Day to you all. Uh, if you are thinking, uh, if you're not a dad and you're thinking of having, having kids, don't uh, (laughs) I know that's the most ungodly advice I've ever given but let me let me show you a little bit of the progression that happens with fatherhood you know when you don't have any kids you shop at the mall and it's a wonderful thing you know you go to South Point and North Hills and Triangle then you have one kid and you get downgraded to Target and you know it's not bad because you know it's still Target but then you have two kids or more and you'll be in Walmart the rest of your life don't be in Walmart the rest of your life so uh, <laughs> um, happy Father's Day to everybody God has been uh, at work at the Spanish campus it is God's grace we poorly water and plant and uh, God is the one that gives growth and everything else so to him be the glory alone we are looking into Hebrews uh, we've been there several weeks and today We arrive in chapter 8, a real treat uh, with much more in it than anyone can explain in just a few minutes. It's really a rich, rich chapter. So let's dig right in. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. And God's Word says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. I love that right off the bat, God here in this chapter tells us the point of everything we've been talking about in Hebrews. The point is a high priest that not only intervened for us, but is the greatest prize and treasure anyone can have. His name is Jesus. And indeed, he's better. But not just that, he's greater than anyone and everything. And this intro also reveals that Christ is our minister in the holy places, as verse 2 says. You know, sometimes we think that when we come to church, we're the one that minister to God. But reality is, is that God is the one that has ministered to us first. When we praise him and worship him through music, he actually gave us life first, the reason we can praise him is because he ministered to us first. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we do so only because he first gave himself for us. The fact that we're even here today is his love and grace at work in us. Philippians says that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the fact that we're even here is his idea. He is our minister. This high priest is also a king, but not just any king. He's the king of kings, for as verse 1 points out, he's seated in majesty in heaven. What a summary, an introduction by God to this chapter. Uh, Jesus is the point of Hebrews. He's the king, the priest, and the minister of all who trust in him. And now, God is going to further explain Christ's saving work for us in something that he calls the new covenant. The new covenant. And the the name itself gives it away that there there was an old covenant, covenant but this this new covenant is different and better than the old covenant verse 7 for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault when with, with them when he says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will establish a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant and so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord some versions say for I turn my face away from them for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. in speaking, speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. Let me start by touching a subject that I believe will really, really help us a lot in understanding the New Covenant. And that subject is religion. Religion. There's a great question in our society today. They're asking, does religion have anything to do with the conflicts that we're seeing today in the world? Does religion lead to conflict? It's a great question. and My, my first reaction is to answer no, because I'm a Christian and because sadly, every time... Our society thinks of Christianity, they think of religion, they mix it with religion, and because I don't want Christianity to look look bad, then, you know, I don't want to answer yes to that, I want to answer no. But the more I think of whether religion leads to conflict or not, the more I realize that the answer is yes, it does. When I think, for example, of the the conflicts that have existed for years in the Middle East, or or the division that exists in the church in America, or even the extreme, the the, the extreme The stream folks that that sadly strap explosives to their bodies. I think the reason they do that is because they have religious convictions that take them to do such things. They are convinced that they're doing some sort of good according to their religion. When I think of the animosity and rivalry between religious entities, I can't help to admit that indeed religion leads to conflict. There are millions of people bearing religion. They are not that many bearing Christ. And something I would like to leave clear is that even though our society thinks of Christianity, when they're talking about religion, the church of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with religion. And I hope we see that in the text in the next few minutes. Christianity is not religion. And I've actually found out that when people are actually criticizing the church... They're not criticizing the gospel or the Christian faith. The majority of times they're criticizing the religion that sadly has creeped into the church. There is a great difference between a religious church and a Christian church, even if they're in the same denomination. How sad it is that Christianity gets mixed with religion because religion is a dead end. And you know, people may have beliefs and convictions that are honest and sincere, that doesn't mean you can't be honestly and sincerely wrong. One place where I saw this uh, very vividly is when I went to college in Miami, Miami, Florida, I I took this social studies class, and um, semester starts, class starts, and the professor starts by hammering. I mean, this guy belittled Christianity and Christ. And he, the whole class, he was just painting this horrible picture of Christianity and talking about religion and Christianity. Nobody said a word. Second class, he did the same thing. This time he had video on the class TV of TV evangelist just to show the hypocrisy in the church. Nobody said a word. Third class, I was boiling already, I was like dying inside. Third class, he starts in the same fashion. I couldn't believe it. And I raised my hand and stood up, and if you think my English is bad now, it was horrible back then. So I was freaking out. I was shaking. I had this Tarzan-like English, but I couldn't. I was boiling inside. I raised my hand and I stood up, and I said, I told the professor that I was a Christian and that Christianity had to do with bearing Christ. And then I challenged the professor to go with me to the library and grab a Bible, any Bible he wanted, and read about Jesus, and then tell me the Jesus he read about is even something remotely like the Jesus he was painting in the class. And then I said, sir, you're talking about religion, not Christ, not Christianity, and though many of us Christians Don't represent Christ well. Please don't roll us into a totally distorted image of Christ and real Christianity. And you can imagine the huge, awkward silence in the class. And uh, thankfully, thank God, this professor didn't fight back. I don't think I had enough English to do apologetics or anything like that, you know. Uh, He didn't fight back. And he basically shut his mouth about that. And for the first time in three classes, I started talking about social studies. Praise God. (laughs) You know? In in charismatic terms, by the way, in charismatic terms, that's called Jesus shutting up up the mouth of the the devil. Uh, Not that I'm Jesus by any means, but I didn't get kicked out of class or anything. Something that was really funny, I had a church buddy that was taking the same class with me, and I couldn't even see him. I am like, where's Sam? Where's Sam? And Sam is buried under his desk, right beside me, and I'm going, you cower and you call yourself a Christian. Get out of there. Um, the point is that here in Hebrews 8, God shows us that Jesus did not come to start a new religion, nor a better religion. He actually came to put an end to religion and to give us a new covenant relationship with God in Him. And that's our first point. Jesus came to end religion. What is... Religion. What is religion? Well, all religions agree in two basic things. They believe and agree this two basic, these two basic things. First, all religions believe that behind this physical world exists a spiritual reality. That there is a higher, greater power behind what we perceive with our eyes as spiritual reality that cannot be totally explained by natural science. And number two, all religions agree that there is a distance, a gap, an impediment between us and that spiritual reality beyond this physical world, and that this separation we have needs to be bridged in order that we may experience that ultimate greater reality. These are the basic two things that all religions agree with. Uh, It sounds something like the Christian message, but we're going to see how religion is not the same. Um, Now, beyond this two agreements, the difference between religions couldn't be greater. That's why there are so many religions. There is a huge diversity of beliefs and many opinions as to what or who can help us bridge that ultimate spiritual reality. No wonder people in our society are so skeptical about religion. And I confess to you, that i too don't believe that religion can connect us with our maker there are religions that say that we can be connected with our maker through rituals others say through charity others say through personal sacrifices others claim we can gather through meditations and others say through a good moral conduct you know don't do this do that there's a lot of religion but religion and redeemer are not the same thing now There is a gap between us and the only one who satisfies us, our Creator. And so many many look in religion to be freed from, from, from what interferes with them having a relationship with God, problem is religion leads to conflict, not resolution. It doesn't take away your sin, it doesn't bridge the gap. It doesn't matter what you do and how much of it you do it. Religion does not eliminate the distance between you and the Creator. The solution then is not religion. Nor is the solution the absence of religion. Neither can reconcile you with your maker. And the bad news is that we continue to live miserably separated from God. But Hebrews 8 says there is good news. The Bible points us to a person, a savior that didn't come to start a new religion. He came to bridge the gap between us and God so that we may be reconciled in him and finally arrive at our maker, the only place of true satisfaction and true joy. That Savior is Christ. The king and priest, that Hebrews, has been talking about all along. The one who not only laid out the law, but who also came to fulfill the law in our place. Our hope is in him, not in religion. Our hope is in his finished work, not in our religious observances to him. Let me remind us real quick, we saw saw this uh, a couple of weeks ago, of what the Bible means when he says, just quickly, um, Jesus was a king and a priest. These two positions, king and priest, were positions that the same person could not officiate. A chosen few were king, and another chosen few were king, but never both. And as you heard Pastor J.D. say, a king would represent God to the people. He would dictate God's law to the people, giving them what they needed to obey. But a priest would represent the people before God. That priest, being the mediator, would try and bridge the gap between creator, God, and created, us, making sacrifices for the people's failure to obey the law that God had already laid out. So a king represented God, a priest represented the people, two separate positions. Now Jesus is both king and priest. He is God for by him and for him all things were made. Christ sits enthroned in heaven as we saw in verse 1 but he's also priest. He intervened on our behalf. He came to bridge the gap between us and God. Not only is he king and priest, he is the only perfect priest that voluntarily became the actual sacrifice for those who ignore and reject our maker you and I. And That's what Hebrew is talking about Remember uh, how we started the series, the first sermon of of this series, chapter 1 of Hebrews. It says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins as the high priest that he is, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as the king of kings that he is. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This king is the price that our souls have been searching for all of our lives, the greatest treasure. Jesus is better and greater than the sum of all creation put together. Listen, the glory of this world, it's worthless and vain. It's a lie. There's always going to be somebody more beautiful than you, more handsome than you, someone more successful than you, someone more uh, revered than you, someone richer than you, someone more respected and popular than you. The glory of this world is vain. It's a worthless lie. But the glory of God is Jesus. He's greater than life and greater than the sum of all things created. And this king doesn't just rule. He's the priest that gave himself for his people. Every religion has its founder. And you know what they say? Every founder in religion says that their religion points to the truth, that that, that their religion points to the ultimate reality behind this physical world. But Jesus claims he is that truth. He is that ultimate reality. He doesn't just point to it. He's it. It's not like Jesus is loving. He is love. He is the creator king that dictates truth. And he's also the priest that took our curse at the cross so that we may have a new covenant relationship with God and enjoy God forever. As our high priest, he's the one that bridges the gap between us and God. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection is the bridge between us and God. That's why Colossians says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. There is her separation right there. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. Wow, this is great news. It is he who reconciles us through his blameless life and sacrifice for us and presents us sinners as holy before God, not because there is any holiness in us, but because he is holy. All religions tell you, do this or the other, experience this, and it will draw you near to God. It will bridge the gap. But Jesus says, I am the God that at great cost to myself came for you. It was I that drew you near." he will side that intervene and close the gap gap which you could have never bridged with your silly religions and silly sin stained works i am the one who drew you near church the only reason why we can approach the throne of grace is because he approached this kingdom of darkness and evil and slavery so that we may have freedom in him that's why the bible says that he came finished his work and then seated You want to know why he seated? Because he finished religion. He fulfilled every religious law. He finished. His finished work concluded with the old covenant and started a new covenant for us, making himself near to us and making us near to him. It is finished. It is done. We no longer need religion. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There's nothing and no one else that reunites us with our maker. Jesus is the final temple to end all temples, the final priest to end all priests, and the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. That's why chapter 7 says he has no need, like those priests, those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, the word religion comes up four times in the Bible. And it means external practices and religious observances. And this word, we don't see it ever applied directly to Christianity. Why do you think that the Romans, who by the way, let anybody have their own religion, there was over a thousand religions in Rome, why do you think that these Romans persecuted Christians and then called them atheists? That's because Christianity was not the beginning of a new religion. History tells us that a conversation between a Roman and a Christian was very interesting. When you read uh, about early Christianity or the Roman Empire, I, I would like to uh, sort of play for you what a conversation between a Roman and a Christian would sound like. It would be something like this. Roman guys comes up to the Christian and says, hey, man, what kind of religion you got there? The Christian says, oh, it's actually not a religion. Okay, whatever, but Where's your temple? We don't have one. Jesus is our temple. Dude, you're freaking me out. That's like weird. But where where does your priest operate from? We don't have a mediator here. Jesus is our mediator. So then where do you do your sacrifices in order to be accepted by God and find his favor? Jesus is our sacrifice, and in him we already have been accepted before God. In fact, only in Jesus anyone can acquire God's favor. Because he did so at the cross for us. But what kind of religion is that? Well, I told you it wasn't a religion. And so that's kind of the, how it would play. And that's why they called Christians atheists. First Christians were called atheists. Listen, Jesus didn't come to give you a religion. He came to offer you a relationship, a new covenant relationship with God. Christianity offers you a person, a savior. In fact, the gospel is quite opposite. They're quite the opposite of religion. Religion tells you if you do and obey, you will be loved and accepted. The gospel tells you God has already loved you. Look at the cross. Because of his great love for you, you can obey. And let me tell you, as much as Christian teachers get criticized around here, (laughs) um, I saw this one the other day, because I'm not going to admit that I was the one wearing it, um, that said this. I really like it. It says, Religion is humans trying to work their way to God. Christianity is God coming to us in Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a religion. There is something better, which leads us to our second point. Jesus gives us a new covenant relationship with God. And listen, I believe with all of my heart that if we can get this second point in the next few minutes, not only is that going to, give us the proper perspective on how God relates to us and we to God, but it's really going to help us in our relationships. So let's tune in on this one. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? And how do you know that you're in a covenant relationship with God? Verse 8 and 9. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. So what's a covenant? Let me tell you what a covenant is not first. Let me do that first. A covenant is not a contract. You see, our tendency is to think of covenant as a contract. But those two couldn't be farther from each other. You couldn't even put them in the same sentence. That's like putting my name and the word diet in the same sentence. It would never happen, ever. This belly has cost me too much money to put on. I'm letting it go that easily. This thing is an investment. Uh, <laughs> covenant and contract are poles apart like gospel and religion. Check this out. A contract is a conditional commitment. A covenant is an unconditional commitment. A covenant is based on trust A contract is based on distrust. That's where you're making the contract to begin with because each party doesn't trust each other. That's contract, not covenant. Let me tell you, it was kind of hard for me to understand the way this society here in America thought of contract because I come from South America. It's where I lived before I came to the United States. I lived a bunch of years in South America. And before that, I was born and raised in one of the Caribbean islands. So... You know, over there, um, really, there's not that many contracts. You know, uh, for example, if, if, if somebody lends you money, you tell them, hey, you know, I'm going to pay you back. And that word, that word is a covenant. I mean, you actually do believe the guy is going to pay you back. And so there's no contract. It's just a word that, you know, the guy will pay you back. Well, when I came here, it was totally different. I'll never forget the time that I asked my neighbor for a, for his lawnmower, if I could use his lawnmower, and he came to me with a little piece of paper saying, "Well, you know, can you sign here? You're gonna give it back to me." I'm like, "Dude, I live right here. Like, what? Are you, where are we gonna go? You know?" Because everything we do in America has a contract, and so we, we tend to think of, of covenant as contract, but that, that's not the case. A covenant is a covenant is based on trust. A contract is based on distrust. A covenant cannot be broken if unwanted circumstances occur. A contract, on the other hand, can be voided with mutual consent. In the Bible, the most intimate relationships are the most binding and committed. A covenant relationship is one that is very intimate yet totally committed. And it is really hard for us to understand this in this society because we put intimacy and commitment in separate boxes. We separate the legal from the formal. We we, we separate intimacy from commitment. But the Bible sees relationships as a covenant, intimate, yet committed at the same time. In fact, let's see why the more committed the relationship is, the more intimate and personal and united it becomes. Let's see the contrast between how we look at relationships and how God sees a covenant relationship. Don't, Don't miss this. This is how two people Usually you start a relationship, any type of relationship, friendship, dating, marriage. This is is how they relate to each other with the following mentality. I'll be what I must be to you as long as you are what you must be to me. I'll be good to you only if you're good to me. Or I'll be what I got to be in this relationship only to the measure that you be what you got to be in this relationship. The problem when you relate to someone like that is that undoubtedly that relationship will grow cold and distant. It's just a matter of time. Intimacy has been lost because you know that you're not loving truly the other person. You're loving yourself through the other person, and you know the same thing about the other person. Intimacy has been lost. That's why in a selfish marriage, sex is the first thing that goes person that goes away your sex life becomes infrequent and in some cases sadly non-existent and that's a normal pattern why because intimacy has been lost due to a lack of covenant neither one wants to give up their independence or reasoning so the lack of covenant breaks intimacy there cannot be intimacy without surrendering autonomy there cannot be Intimacy without surrendering independence, or if we can only see that. There cannot be deep intimacy without covenant, without unconditional love and commitment. Now, if instead two persons approach the relationship saying, I'll be what I must be to you whether or not you are what you must be to me. I'll be good to you even if you're not good to me, even if you're failing in what you need to be to me. And perhaps you're thinking, that's so dumb. It's too risky to love like that. Actually, that thinking is a clear sign that you don't want to surrender your independence, and therefore you're damning yourself from ever having a true intimate relationship with anyone. But if two persons would relate like that to each other, loving each other with that unconditional covenant putting aside reciprocity putting the other's needs above yours whether you feel like it or not only in that covenant can there be intimacy you know why because it's safe it's safe you can trust and love because you have been loved unconditionally it's a covenant and so it's so secure and safe it's a love that's not going anywhere now the bad thing bad news is that nobody in this planet loves like that, but there's good news. Paul Tripp, loved that guy. He says it this way. He says, romance does not lead to deep intimacy. Intimacy, however, does lead to great romance. The more committed a relationship is, the more intimate it becomes. Covenant leads to intimacy. And by the way, That's also why the best sex is not between single people. By definition, someone single is someone who hasn't yet entered a covenant, an unconditional commitment. The best sex happens between a married couple where Christ is the center of that relationship because you're making love to someone that has made a covenant to you, someone that has vowed to spend their life with you despite your sin. That is what covenant relationship is. That's true love. And I'll be honest with you, the greatest times of intimacy between my wife and I have not come out of me being the perfect husband that day, I've been so good today, I'm being such a good husband that we're going to have great sex at night, or it has not come out of her being the perfect wife, not at all, the best and greatest times of intimacy have rather come out of the acknowledgement of our sin our brokenness and weakness and the amazing realization that in the middle of our weakness, God has committed to love us unconditionally. And that shows us how to love each other and that leads to passionate intimacy. When we are reminded of Christ's new covenant for us, great intimacy happens with God. Passion for God overflows. Church, the new covenant reveals to us Christ's perfect, selfless, undeserving love for us, and that makes us fall in love with God, and so we dive all in, in mission with God, and that new covenant also shows us how to love each other. The more I see the other person in a relationship telling me, I love you unconditionally, even if you don't love me the same way, the more that gives me the freedom to love that person, yet be weak, I'm vulnerable and confess and open up about my sin to that person and, and seek help. And that's what Jesus is telling you in Hebrews 8. That's what he's telling you today. I have loved you. I have made a new covenant of unconditional commitment to you. I took your cross and upon me all your sin. I was so intimate with you that I nailed myself to you on that cross. And because of that, you can approach me just the way you are. I knew you well before you were born. I knew your sin, and I still loved you. Christ's covenant love changes everything, and only in him we can love like that. It's almost like like if God is telling us, what part of unconditional love don't you get? You see, we are so proud, so arrogant, and selfish that the only way we want someone to love us it's if we love them first. You know why? So that we later feel that the only reason they love us is because we first loved them. In other words, they love me because I have something to do with it. That's religion. That's how controlling and selfish we are. We really want all the glory, power, and control. But the gospel, the new covenant Christ made, tells you that before you could love him, he loved you. And you don't like that. You don't like that because it takes humility to accept that you had nothing to do with Christ loving you. That's how sick we are. But you know what's the best part? Jesus knew this before he made his unconditional covenant with us. He knew that about us. He knew well how wicked and self-seeking our hearts are, and still he loved us unconditionally. That's the new covenant. You know, people... When they really get to know you, as John Piper says, uh, everybody is pretty until you get really close. (laughs) So true. People, when they get to know you intimately, and then they see your sin because they're getting closer to you, they gasp. They go, oh, my God. I didn't know he could be like that. I didn't know she could be that ugly. Oh, my gosh. That woman has some issues. Everybody gasp when they see your sin you want to know something jesus doesn't gasp because he's seen your sin he's seen it all along he knew you and yet he loved you christ's love is not based on our devotion to him but on his devotion to us And I pray that you wake up to the fact that he does profoundly love you and you had nothing to do with it. He's God, it is his heart, he can do whatever he wants with it and he chose to love you. You shouldn't say why, you should say wow. I pray that you will believe, repent, and accept his love. Only when you are willing to give up your independence, you will know the freedom of an intimate relationship with God and others. To the measure that you're willing to give up your independence, to that measure you know intimacy in a relationship. So then what we see in Hebrews 8 is that God had established an old covenant with his people, but the old covenant was pure law. It had elements of what we see in religion today, like a demand to obey, but not the power to do so. And don't get me wrong, it was a perfect law. So perfect is God's law that it makes us realize we are too imperfect to obey it. And in verse 9, we see that God says, For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them. They didn't obey me, so I turned my face away from them, says God. We see here that the old covenant was conditional, not on God's part, on our part. He will always love, but not us. Conditional on the people obeying, and since they, and all of us, disobey God, God turned his face from them. Conditional relationship, by definition, won't last because you will surely break the religious conditions you're supposed to obey. Besides, conditional or religious relationships selfishly demand reciprocity. In religion, you start to come to church, you start to read the Bible and pray, and you even join a team that serves here, but your mentality towards God in religion is I'm going to be the more religious person that I need to be. I'm even going to make it every weekend to church, but only if you, God, give me this and that or whatever fills the blank that you think you need to be happy That is not God. In other words, I'll do God what I need to do, providing that you do what I think you need to do for me. Because look, God, look at all this devotion that I'm giving you. Look at all this time that I'm giving you. That's religion. I'll do this if you do that. Another proof that Christianity is not religion because Christianity, again, is not based in our unfaithful, unfa- sin-filled devotion to God, but on Christ's perfect devotion to us. Also in religion, and no offense with this, but in religion, religion sees God as Santa Claus. I mean, no offense to the big man. <laughs> uh, But in religion, you think of God as that guy who's thinking, well, these people over here are being pretty good to me, so I'll bless them. These other people over here, they're not doing things with the right heart motivation, so I'm not going to help them at all. But that's not God. And though there are blessings for obeying God, yes, yes. Yet God does not look at us according to how little or how much we sin. If He did, Psalm 130 says, none of us would be left standing. None of us. I don't care how devoted you are. Having a view of God like that is religion, it's not the way the gospel describes God to us. The old covenant, verse 9, is if you sin, God will turn His face from you. If He sees your sin, He will show you no concern, verse 9. But in the new covenant, we have verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's good news. I will be merciful towards your iniquities. In other words, I won't give you what you deserve. That's what mercy means. And I will remember your sins no more. What a new covenant we have in Christ. The old covenant is obsolete now, verse 12. And 13, this new covenant is Jesus' unconditional love. And it is for whoever believes. And boy, is there room for intimacy there. Because there is pure love flowing towards us. A love that doesn't demand a reciproc- reciprocation, but rather wins it. A love that is so secure that we don't deserve. And you say, well, how can this be? And I'll finish with this. You say... How can this be? How can God say that even when we sin, He chooses not to remember our sins and not give us what we deserve for our iniquities? How in the world is that possible? Remember how a covenant relationship starts? With one person saying, I'll be faithful to you even if you're not faithful to me? Where did God do this? Where did God say this? Where did God start a new covenant relationship with us? He did it in Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. We don't deserve it, I know. But that's what God did for us, a new covenant. I was talking to a couple about this kind of love, not, not too long ago, about the way Christ loves us and how we at the light of that and only in Him we can love like that. And the guy got really, really angry with me when I said that. He said, Why do I have to love like that? Why do I have to adjust to God? Why can't God adjust to me for once? And perhaps many would have told him, you rebel, God has never adjusted to us. We are the ones that always adjust to him, but that's not true. God did adjust to us in the cross. He humbled himself. He took human form. And adjusted to our sin and shame, and there he established a new covenant for you and I. He loved us. Do you have any idea what this cost Jesus? It cost him that at the cross, God took away his face from him. At the cross, verse 9, God did not show any concern for his own son. He turned away from his perfect son, not because he had not fulfilled the old covenant. Oh, Jesus was perfect. He could pass the old covenant with fine colors. Yet God turned his face from his son at the cross. Jesus received the old covenant curse so that we may receive this new covenant blessing. Hallelujah. Jesus received our old covenant curse so that we may receive the new covenant blessing. When Jesus cried out in the cross, Father, Father, why, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was receiving the old covenant curse on our behalf so that we may receive the new covenant blessing in him, unconditional love who took our sins so that we may know him and taste for the first time true life and true relationship. Do you know him? I'm not talking religiously. Do you know him intimately? How do you know you have a new covenant relationship with him? I ran out of time, so I'm just going to give them to you. Intimacy instead of burdensome religion and formalism. Unity instead of selfish agenda that seeks to promote yourself or your cause or your ministry. Community instead of isolation. Listen, I prefer to trust in the new covenant than look great on the outside, yet foolishly trust in my own. That's religion. God cannot be fooled. Believe and repent. And let me tell you, it is really, really hard because on the outside, we cannot tell who's religious and who's Christian sometimes. And I know that. You know how I know that? Several years ago, I'll end with this testimony. I had a heavy preaching schedule in Spanish because I can't preach in English. But... I had a heavy preaching schedule, and I was actually kind of popular in the Spanish Christian world. And my wife, she literally basically revered me as this man of God because I would pray like a maniac and fast like a maniac and just devotion up the roof. And one day, while doing all that, supposedly for God, Christ Christ came into my heart. He had mercy on me. He showed me this new covenant. And I went up to my wife, and I said, Honey, you know, on the weekends, you know, when you're here from work, on evenings, on the weekends, have you noticed that when I go into pray, into the master bedroom, and I kneel by my bed, and I'm praying there for hours, have you ever noticed that I actually leave the door of the room open? That I always leave the door open? And she looked at me and said, uh, well, I guess so. I've kind of never, never, never even noticed. But yeah, yeah, that's true. You, the, the door is open. And I said, you know you know why the door is open? Because I fooled myself. I never even believed my own lie that I'm praying to God. But the only reason why I leave the door open is so that as you work in the house and you're walking back and forth, you will look inside that room and you will exalt me and you will say, wow, what a great man of God that is. Honey, I'm a hypocrite. I am plenty religious, but I am not a Christian. And with that came a lot of other confessions. I asked friends of mine, hey, do you think that I'm proud? Because I saw there's a lot of pride. And they're like, proud you? Dude, no way. And I said, well, let me ask my wife because she's done a lot of me. And I asked my wife, Abby, honey, do you think I'm proud? Like, honestly, just tell me. And she was like, no, I mean, really, not at all. And I'm like, oh, my God, I am a pro. You know, I fooled my own wife. I fooled my own wife. Every time I would read the Bible, I talked about sinners. I'm like, yeah, dumb, and didn't realize that was me. Because religion tends to see people as good people and bad people, but the gospel sees people as everyone's bad. Only Jesus is good. And I had to repent. I remember even one day making a list to God that I thought was amazing. And I say, God, I I want to take your word to the nations. I want my family to know you. I want this community to know you. I want to exalt your name. I want to take this gospel to the rest of the world. And that's great answers for a religious. But you know what the problem is with those answers? That every answer has I in it. It is not about us. Church, there is a great difference between being a Christian and being a religious person. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would repent and accept the new covenant and let down your independence and autonomy and realize the reason he loves you has nothing to do with you. He initiated his love. That's why the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Will you pray with me and repent? Have you ever experienced Christ's love poured out? in your heart, in a way that leaves you speechless, in awe of God, where all you can do is worship Him because you've never felt loved like that before. Have you ever read the Bible and His words come alive, a vivid reality that changes the way you relate to God and others? Have you ever experienced a relationship with God, a personal interaction with your Maker, or is He... For you, some distant deity that you pray to and pay homage to and pay your dues to coming here every weekend. Are you bearing religion? Christ is better. His new covenant means you can know him intimately. And yes, you can be weak. He already knows you because he loves you intimately and unconditionally. That means you can love him unconditionally as well in him. And that means you can learn to love like him. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that we would repent. That we would search our hearts and realize that our motivations are so sin-filled. And Lord, that we need to welcome you into our hearts even if we've been in the church a long time. Lord, what a difference. Religion and the gospel are not the same thing. What freedom, what love, what humility the, the, the gospel leads us to. And courage. Courage to repent. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that every person in this room and hearing this sermon, Lord, that you revealed your new covenant to them. Your new covenant. Thank you for coming, Jesus Christ. Thank you because your relationship to us is not a contract. It's not based on our reciprocation. It's based on your faithful love for us. Lord, I pray we love others like that. We can only do that when we actually start a new covenant relationship with you. So in Jesus' name, when we draw near to you today because you have drawn near to us. I pray in your precious name, Jesus. You be the glory and the honor alone. Amen.